A new report on gross domestic product shows the U.S. economy rebounded in July, August, and September. It grew at an annual rate of 2.6 percent after six months of negative growth. But the economy still faces challenges, including high inflation. The story is coming up on this Thursday, October 27th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, world leaders will soon start crucial climate change negotiations in Egypt. A U.N. study shows the world needs to make drastic cuts in emissions to avoid extreme climate risks. Also, some good environmental news. A giant hole in the ozone layer is shrinking after a phase-out of certain chemicals. Nations eventually are going to act to protect climate just as they've acted to protect the ozone layer. And the blowback against rapper and entrepreneur Kanye West for his latest anti-Semitic remarks. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden strikes an optimistic tone over today's GDP numbers. Great economic report today. The GDP report. Things are looking good. Just before leaving today for central New York, Biden reacted to the Commerce Department's report that the U.S. economy grew last quarter at a pace of 2.6 percent following two straight quarterly declines. But the rebound's not calming recession fears. The Fed's expected to raise interest rates again in its aggressive campaign to battle persistently high inflation. For the first time, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney is crossing party lines to endorse a Democratic candidate running for re-election in Michigan's 7th Congressional District. Today, Cheney announced plans to campaign for Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. Slotkin is facing a challenge from Republican State Senator Tom Barrett. Cheney lost her Republican primary in Wyoming after she became one of the few Republicans in Congress who've gone on the record strongly criticizing former President Donald Trump. A day ahead of the court-imposed deadline for Elon Musk to make good on his purchase of Twitter, the CEO of Tesla is trying to address advertisers' concerns about new policies there. NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon has details. If the $44 billion deal closes, Elon Musk will control a political asset, a mass communication platform, and a high-profile advertising business. But advertisers and users are nervous about what kind of policy changes he'll make there. Musk tweeted he's buying Twitter to help humanity and have a common digital town square. He wrote that the social media company must be warm and welcoming to all and a respected advertising platform. Previously, Musk said he would reinstate former President Donald Trump's account and loosen content moderation standards, as well as lay off a good portion of Twitter's staff. Raquel Maria Dillon, NPR News, San Francisco. Russian President Vladimir Putin is accusing the West and its ally Ukraine of spiking nuclear tensions with Moscow. NPR's Charles Maines reports Putin's comments came in a closely watched foreign policy address with concerns over nuclear escalation. Speaking at an annual forum for regional analysts, Putin insisted Russia was simply reacting to recent nuclear threats from the West, even as he repeated his own unfounded allegations that Ukraine was intent on detonating a radioactive dirty bomb on its own soil in order to blame Moscow. The Russian leader also took now familiar broadsides against Western liberal elites, cancel culture, and the legitimacy of Ukrainian statehood. Putin posited the conflict in Ukraine as a tragic but inevitable outcome of what he called tectonic changes in world affairs, one in which an age of Western dominance was coming to an end and a new world order was emerging in Russia, China, and other parts of the globe. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. For the third time in the last three quarters, the Massachusetts economy has grown at a slower pace than has the nation's as a whole. Nationally, the economy grew at 2.6% annual rate from July through September. Massachusetts grew only six-tenths of 1%. Michael Goodman is a professor of public policy at UMass Dartmouth. He says Massachusetts is vulnerable to high interest rates because of its concentration of tech and life sciences companies. Those firms tend to rely on investment capital from private sources, uh, venture funds, et cetera. And in a rising interest rate environment, that's a more dicey proposition, especially in a slower uh, economy. Wage and salary growth in Massachusetts also lag behind national growth. The MBTA says it needs to hire more than 750 new drivers if it wants to expand its bus service. The T wants to increase by 25 percent the frequency of bus trips in parts of the system, including Chelsea, Everett, Malden, Medford, Lynn, Roxbury, and Dorchester. The MBTA has a pilot program that trains new hires for commercial driver's permits. Methuen's mayor says the state is failing to find long-term solutions to a migrant housing crisis. Mayor Neil Perry says more than 50 families from Central and South America are being housed in a hotel in his city. He tells WBR's Radio Boston the state never gave him advance notice when it moved the migrants to Methuen. We found out some of these have been relocated multiple times hotel to hotel without anybody from the state talking to them or telling them what the plan is. And that's the frustrating part. On the South Shore, town leaders in Kingston say they too did not get notice from the state before more than 100 migrants and homeless people were moved into a hotel there. The State Department of Housing and Urban Development has not responded to a request for comment. Boston-based Partners in Health is receiving $25 million to study how health care can best be delivered around the globe. The Weiss Asset Management Foundation is pledging the funds over the next 25 years. Partners in Health will use the money to figure out how to tailor health care to populations historically underserved by medicine. 65 degrees now, a stunning afternoon, pretty mild out there. Clear skies tonight, but cold should drop to about 40 overnight. And for tomorrow, back to the sunshine. Temperatures only peaking out at about 53 degrees. Saturday, bright and sunny around 60. Sunday, partly to mostly sunny, about 63. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. We got some encouraging news about the U.S. economy today. Despite high inflation and rising interest rates, the economy grew at a pretty healthy clip in the late summer and early fall. That is a turnaround from the first half of the year when it appeared to be shrinking. The outlook, though, may not be as rosy as today's numbers suggest. And for more on that, we're joined by NPR's Scott Horsley. Hi, Scott. Hi, Juana. So, Scott, when you look at this report at first glance, it seems pretty positive. But tell us, how good is it? Maybe not quite as good as the headline number would suggest. Uh, We're talking about the Commerce Department's report on gross domestic product, which is the broadest measure of economic activity. And today's report shows the economy grew at an annual rate of 2.6% in July, August, and September after shrinking in the two previous quarters. 
But a lot of that turnaround came from a big swing in international trade. Exports were way up in the third quarter while imports were way down. And that's not likely to continue, especially when a strong dollar is making it more expensive for people in other countries to buy American products. If you focus on domestic demand, which is really the heart of GDP, what you see is an economy that is growing, but just barely. So, Scott, what is holding the economy back? Inflation is still high. Uh, That's cutting into people's purchasing power. And then the Federal Reserve is deliberately tapping the brakes in an effort to slow the economy and bring inflation under control. You know, the Fed has raised interest rates aggressively all through the summer and early fall, and you can really see the impact in the housing market. The housing component of GDP just plummeted in the last three months. Uh, I spoke with a Michigan home builder, Karen Schroeder, whose company Mayberry Homes is still working on the houses they started construction of uh, months ago. But she told me the phone's not ringing much, and the new sales that would ordinarily carry her into the new year have dropped off sharply in the last few months. As long as the rates keep going up, we're going to find people slowing down. It's slowing down our industry. It's slowing down our economy. And when housing slows down, everything does. It's true that when home sales drop off, so does demand for furniture and appliances and lots of other goods. And today's report does show a drop in spending on stuff in the last three months. Now, people are still spending money on services like travel and entertainment and health care. So even though prices are going up, people are still opening their wallets. And that's really important because consumer spending is still the biggest driver of the broader economy. And we've heard a lot of warnings about a possible recession being just around the corner. Scott, what does today's report tell us about that? We're not out of the woods. Uh, The core components of GDP show an economy that's moving just above stall speed, and it wouldn't take a lot to tip it into recession. Uh, The housing industry is probably there already. Freddie Mac said today that mortgage rates have topped 7% for the first time in two decades. That's more than double what a home loan cost last year. That's putting houses out of reach for a lot of people. Uh, Now, that said, Karen Schroeder told me she remembers selling houses when interest rates were 18%. So this is not her first taste of tough times. She had hoped she might ease into retirement without another uh, downturn in the housing market. But it looks like that's not in the cards. I've been in the industry since the 70s. And in 2008, I said that was the last recession I was going to do. And here I am. And I guess we're going to go through this one, too. Mark my words. You've got it on tape. This is my last one. Now, most forecasters say if there is a recession in the coming year, it should be much shorter and shallower than the 2008 downturn. You know, one source of strength is the job market, which is still really strong, and unemployment is still historically low. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you. You're welcome. The United Nations is weighing a motion to send an international force into Haiti. In the country, it's a topic of debate without any easy answers. NPR's Ader Peralta reports from Port-au-Prince. The protest starts just outside the French embassy in downtown Port-au-Prince. Down with the prime minister, they chant, down with the occupation. One of the protest organizers, Nicholson Pierre, says there is no life in Haiti at the moment. There's no electricity, no clean drinking water. So today the population is left on its own and the bandits are the law. Today the country is going to the slaughterhouse. The crowd behind him hoists a Chinese flag. Others carry Russian flags. 
When the UN was last here, he says, all they brought was kidnappings, rape, and cholera. If ever the United Nations will send foreign forces on this land, we're going to fight even more. Haiti has been spiraling for years now, but the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse last year precipitated an even deeper crisis. The country is now ruled by an acting prime minister, and nearly six weeks ago, a confederation of gangs blocked the country's main seaport and the massive fuel depots that keep Haiti going. The military and police, which are barely breathing, could do nothing but watch. Myself, I see this intervention as inevitable because you have gangs like in Somalia and you don't have the manpower, you don't have the guns to, to destroy this insurrection. That is historian Georges Michel. This is all painful, he says, because Haiti, the first black-led republic in modern history, cherishes its sovereignty. The other U.S. incursions in 1915 and 1994 and 2004 were seen as humiliating by Haitians. But at this point, he thinks, there might not be another choice. I would say something in French. Nous ne sommes plus à une humiliation près. At this point, he says, Haitians are not far from another humiliation. So now we, are, uh, we have gangs everywhere. So they keep us right here. We're going to die. We cannot breathe. Pierre Esperance is one of the most prominent human rights advocates in Haiti. He says for years now, the government of Haiti has used gangs to squash dissent. The international community, especially the U.S., not only ignored the problem, he says, but they kept supporting the governments that were arming the gangs. The civil society, he says, offered them political solutions before Haiti descended into anarchy. You they don't want that. They want us to remain in that situation and they contribute also to that situation. Through our interview, Esperance offers plenty of reasons why an international intervention is a bad idea. It goes against the popular will. It is a military solution to a political problem. But when I ask him directly if he thinks an intervention is necessary, he demurs. The current police force cannot solve the insecurity issue now. Police force need uh, a reinforcement. In the end, it's a choice between an intervention or the gangs. The protest works its way toward the UN offices, passing huge piles of trash that haven't been picked up in weeks. Out of frustration, demonstrators throw glass bottles to the streets. Junior Albert Augustin survived a kidnapping. He knows things are bad, but he doesn't want foreign troops here. Please let us live. That's all we ask for. We are human beings, we want to be respected, and we want to be able to decide by ourselves. Maybe, he says, they don't have a Haitian solution right now, but this country needs the space to try to find it. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Port-au-Prince. Elsa, I, I have a question for you. Okay, yeah. How much time do you spend talking to strangers? Are you serious? In our job? Like every day. Wanda. I don't think it's just the job for you. <laughs> that's true. I do go up to random people. I do. I feel like that's something that probably makes you happy. 
I think it honestly does. Interviewing people all day honestly makes me feel less lonely in life. I think my job makes me happier. Is that weird? I don't think that's weird as somebody who's been doing this job last time. I think it makes me happier too. And I got to tell you, there's a new study that's out of the Harvard Business School, and it actually found that people are happier when they have more of something that's called relational diversity in their life. I will admit we made the term up as we were writing the paper. It's a term that works, though. That is Hannah Collins. She authored the study, and she spoke to our colleague, Weekend Edition host Ayutha Roscoe, about it. Relational diversity has two elements. So one is what we call richness. Richness measures how many different kinds of people you interact with day to day. So like your romantic partner versus your parent versus your neighbor versus strangers. And the second element is evenness, or how often you talk to each of them. So say on any given day, you mostly talk to your colleagues and you speak once with your mom. That's not very even. But if you, you know, have a few conversations with colleagues, a few with friends, a few with a romantic partner, a couple of chats with strangers, you know, that, that's going to be more even across these categories. And of course, we wanted to hear what everyday people thought about this. So we sent ATC producer Manuela Lopez Restrepo to Brooklyn's McCarran Park, well, to talk to some strangers. So I just wanted to know, do you talk to strangers a lot? Do you talk to people in your community, grocery store? Yeah, Yeah, exactly like I'm doing. My editor is very sadistic in that way. But do you interact with strangers in your everyday life a lot? Yeah. One thing I love about our neighborhood living in is you can go to a grocery store and have a conversation with someone. I think especially after the few years that we've all been through, it's nice just to have interaction. So I would agree. I go to the corner store or whatever and I talk to somebody and We'll be talking about basketball, talking about bud, tequila, drinks. It don't even matter. We just spoke a conversation. You're like, all right, yo, I'm going to holler at you. I'm out. And then that next time I see him at the corner store, it just goes from point A to point B. And you just end up chilling or whatever, you know, just, just vibing. That was Mike Jones, Ashley Bice, and Eugene Granovsky. As for Hannah Collins, who conducted the research, she says it's changed how she lives her life. You know, I joined like an adult guitar class because I was like, I'll see people and I'll chat with them. The next time you're at the grocery store and you reach for the same apples as the person next to you, talk to them. I mean, I do, even if they don't want me to. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the legacy of so-called urban renewal in one city in the middle of the last century, poor health and medical debt in this century. That's coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Clark, where you can experience Sub-Zero and Wolf appliances with a personal consultant to make informed selections for your home. Details at ClarkLiving.com. Ups and downs on Wall Street today. The Dow was up six-tenths of one percent, 194 points, to close at 32,033. S&P was down the same amount, 0.61 percent, to finish the day at 3,807. The Nasdaq lost the most ground, down 1.63 percent, to close at 10,793. Gasoline in Massachusetts, it's getting more expensive. Today's AAA Northeast survey shows the statewide average at $3.65 a gallon, a nickel higher than yesterday. The average price in Boston is $3.76 a gallon. Nantucket has the highest prices at $4.82 a gallon. It's four nineteen. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a Medix Medicare supplemental plan that works for you. Visit bluecrossma.com go. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Beautiful day for a walk today. And then clear skies overnight tonight should be breezy and cold tonight, down around 40 degrees. For tomorrow, sunny, not quite as warm as today has been. Temperatures about 53 degrees. And then for the weekend, bright and sunny Saturday, partly and mostly sunny on Sunday. 65 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500. Find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Knoxville, Tennessee, like many cities, was reshaped in the 1950s and 60s by so-called urban renewal. That took a toll on the city's black neighborhoods, and it also left a legacy of crushing medical debt. For our investigation into America's debt crisis with partner Kaiser Health News, Noam Levy went to Knoxville to explore that connection. I'm standing in what used to be the heart of black Knoxville. It's a bleak place now. There are acres of empty parking lots. Traffic rumbles by on a noisy freeway. Decades ago, though, there were medical offices here, grocers, funeral homes. The city's first black millionaire built a YMCA. The Gem Theater hosted performers like Billie Holiday. My guide is Gwen McKenzie. She's a city councilwoman who grew up nearby. We had doctors, we had lawyers, we had teachers. There were affluent black people who lived in this area. All this land that you see, that was basically devastated. Starting in the 1950s, Knoxville systematically bulldozed the area. They wanted to make way for the freeway and a new civic auditorium. Churches, black businesses, and hundreds of homes were leveled in the name of modernization. It changed the whole landscape. So you'll have generations that won't recover from that. That's Renee Kessler. She directs a nonprofit that preserves Knoxville's black history. It's called the Beck Cultural Exchange Center. What urban renewal left behind was a neighborhood that's now the poorest in Knoxville, and one with the city's largest share of black residents. A tiny fraction of people here are homeowners. Blocks are blighted by boarded-up buildings and overgrown lots. A Dollar General closed recently. It was one of the only stores in the area that sold groceries. Here's Councilwoman McKenzie again. What happened is that we concentrated black poverty, and from there it became generational. That's had a big impact on health. In East Knoxville, residents are sicker. There's more diabetes and other chronic illness. People here are less likely to have health insurance. They also have more medical debt. More than 30% of residents have a past due medical bill on their credit report. That's according to data from the Urban Institute. A few miles to the west, in Knoxville's overwhelmingly white suburbs, fewer than 10% are in debt for medical care. Ebony Winifred, a clinical psychologist, says what's behind that is a wealth gap. Black people are less likely to have generational wealth to pass on, which means we don't have pockets of money that we can just use if medical bills arise. Winifred works at Cherokee Health, 
a network of clinics that serve low-income patients around Knoxville. Nationally, the typical white family has about $184,000 in assets. This includes homes, savings, and retirement accounts. The assets of the typical black family, just $23,000. Lack of wealth feeds a vicious cycle. Black families without means are more hesitant to seek medical care. That means more illness. A trip to the hospital creates bigger bills. Many patients are forced into debt, making it even harder to build wealth. Back at Cherokee Health, Derek Folsom says something else is going on that discourages people from seeking care. Aggressive debt collection. Somebody knows somebody who's getting sued for medical bills, so they stay away from um, medical facilities. Folsom helps people enroll in health insurance. At the courthouse in Knoxville, debt cases brought by local hospitals fill the docket. National studies have shown that debt collectors target black people more aggressively than whites. Tabase Burns has seen the impact of all this medical debt and poor health too many times to count. She's a nurse in Knoxville. Burns told me about a good friend who'd come to see her recently with a medical concern. Burns was so worried, she felt almost angry. She lifted up her shirt, and it was evident that she had um, this chronic something going on in her breast. And after I told her, I ought to punch you in your face, that's the first thing I told her, because I'm like, how long have you seen this? And I know you knew you needed to take care of this. She didn't have any insurance, so she just thought it would get better. Turned out, the friend had cancer. Burns helped her find medical care, and the friend has since recovered. There was a cost to waiting so long, though. Because the cancer was so advanced, the woman had to get chemotherapy, and she had to have both breasts removed. It could have been worse. What if she didn't know me? What if she just continued to let her breasts leak? Burns says if her friend hadn't been so worried about medical debt, maybe she'd have gone to the doctor sooner. That was Noam Levy with our partner, Kaiser Health News. The ozone layer shields life on Earth from harmful radiation from space. Think of it as the Earth's sunscreen. But you may recall that back in the 1980s, we ripped a hole in that layer over the South Pole by using certain chemicals that destroyed ozone. Well, the world jumped into action and agreed in 1987 to the Montreal Protocol to phase out those chemicals. The hole peaked in size in 2006, and since then, it's been slowly shrinking, a trend that continued this year. Paul Newman is here to tell us more. He's chief scientist for Earth Sciences at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Paul, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I am well. Thanks for being here. Great. The ozone hole is shrinking in size, but still recovering pretty slowly. When do you expect this area of the ozone layer to fully recover? Well, the chlorofluorocarbons um, and halons that lead to ozone destruction are very long-lived chemicals. They increased in the atmosphere through the 70s and 80s, and they began to really decline in 1995. Now, we expect they'll decline at a rate where the ozone hole is back to a normal level in the 2060s to 2070s. The world agreed to phase out these ozone-depleting chemicals in the late 1980s, and it took decades to get to the moderate progress that we are seeing today. Is there a lesson here for acting on global climate change? I think there's a great lesson from the Montreal Protocol, and the lesson is that every nation on Earth has signed it. All nations agreed that protecting the Earth's ozone layer was an existential threat to life on the Earth's surface. I think as climate continues to change, nations are eventually are going to act 
to protect climate just as they've acted to protect the ozone layer. What do you think it is that's different about climate change that makes it harder for the world to come together and agree on steps to fight it? First of all, with climate, there are a lot more people using fossil fuels for various things than we're using chlorofluorocarbons back in, in the 1980s. And so it's a scale uh, problem. Everybody drives cars, everybody has you know gas stoves and so forth. So it's a much, much bigger problem. Replacing air conditioners um, and refrigerators was a little easier back in the 1980s. At the time the protocol was signed, there were some technologies to replace uh, the chemicals that we use. I don't think people really know which chemicals have been replaced in their lives, but they've been replaced. We still have refrigerators, we still have air conditioners, we still have you know foam-blown insulation. All these technologies have now been replaced. And I think it's a real technological achievement um, that, that began to, uh, started at the time the Montreal Protocol was signed, but has evolved since then. Um, so all of these technologies are, are now replaced and, and they're ozone safe. Paul Newman is Chief Scientist for Earth Sciences at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Thank you for sharing a little bit of good news with us today. Uh, it's great to share that news, Juana. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Squint-worthy sun out there this afternoon. Clear skies overnight tonight. Should be breezy and suddenly cold tonight, down to about 40 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine returns. Temperatures peaking at about 53 degrees. And then the weekend is looking pretty nice right now. Saturday, bright and sunny. Highs around 60 degrees. For Sunday, partly to mostly sunny, warming to about 63. 65 degrees now in Boston at 430. WBUR supporters include Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness, located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. All right, here's your buzzword of the day, quantum computing. Quantum computing, you know, has turned into a word that venture capitalists or, you know, people seeking government funding will just sprinkle on anything because it sounds good. I'm Kai Rizdal, Quantum Queries, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The U.S. economy grew faster than expected in the third quarter between July and September. Despite high inflation and interest rate hikes from the Federal Reserve, Commerce Department report snaps two straight quarters of contraction. The economy's health has emerged as a big issue as voting begins in the midterm elections. NPR Scott Horsley says the economy is hardly in the clear. It's maybe a muted celebration. Uh, it does show that the economy is not in recession. 2.6% growth rate is a little better than forecasters expected, and it's it's better than the average growth rate in the decade before the pandemic. But that number is uh, pumped up a little bit by trade flows, which are not likely to be repeated. Uh, exports were up in the third quarter and imports were down. Uh, that's likely to change as uh, the strong dollar cuts into exports and makes imports more attractive. 
NPR's Scott Horsley, the Fed has raised rates five times this year in an effort to curb inflation. The head of the Texas Department of Public Safety says he will not resign despite increasing calls to do so over his agency's response to the mass shooting in Uvalde last May. From the Texas newsroom, Sergio Martinez-Beltran reports. The family members of the victims say Texas Public Safety Director Steve McCraw is not fit to lead the agency. McCraw directly addressed the calls for his resignation today during a meeting of the Public Safety Commission. If DP as an institution, as an institution failed the families, failed the school, or failed okay, the community of Uvalde, then absolutely, I need to go. But I can tell you this right now. DPS as an institution did not fail the community. But DPS has fired a sergeant who responded to the shooting. Other officers under investigation have retired. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Martinez-Beltran in Austin. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston police are appealing to the public for help now that four people have been shot and killed in the city since last weekend. In the latest murder, a man was killed inside a Dorchester barbershop. Police say that attack was not random. Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox says police cannot solve these problems alone. We do need the public support in trying to make sure, you know, you inform us or let us know what you know around these events. Boston police have a hotline for anonymous tips. A former Northeastern University worker is now under federal indictment in connection with a bomb hoax. Word comes today that a federal grand jury indicted Jason Duhame of Texas. Prosecutors say in September he staged a package explosion inside a university building and wrote a fake note to make it appear a terrorist was protesting against the use of virtual reality. The incident prompted a large police response and frightened the community. One-third of the state is out of drought conditions now. The U.S. Drought Monitor finds no drought in 39 percent of the state. That's up from 12 percent last week. However, a majority of the state does remain abnormally dry with the most severe conditions on Cape Ann. A local expert is reminding parents and guardians that Halloween can be stressful for some kids. Suffolk University psychologist David Langer says going door to door and talking with strangers may spark social anxiety in younger children. He says that may be especially true lately because pandemic shutdowns limited kids' opportunities to build social confidence. Langer says patience is key. Some kids may need a little bit more help, especially earlier on on Halloween, where parents maybe ring the doorbell or you give your kid a bit more support as they practice it. Langer says parents can also help kids manage stress by reading books about Halloween or watching videos about how costumes are made. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Still refreshingly mild air out there right now. 65 degrees, lots of sunshine through the evening hours. Then overnight tonight, clear skies and cold down around 40 degrees. Should be sunny once again tomorrow, but chillier than today. Temperatures about 53 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between. Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from Fidelity, 
With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Reigning in climate change, that is the top agenda item when world leaders gather in Egypt in a little more than a week. This week, the United Nations is releasing a report card on whether the world is even coming close to meeting that goal. Spoiler alert, it's not. Lauren Summer is with NPR's Climate Desk. She's seen that report card, and she joins me now to walk us through what she's learned. Hi, Lauren. Hey, Juana. All right, let's just jump right into it if we can. Lauren, how bad is it? It's really, really not good. Um, The whole idea is to put the world on track to limit how much the planet will heat up. And the benchmark is keeping it to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is 2.7 Fahrenheit, by the end of the century. That number is important because beyond that, the risks get dramatically worse in terms of severe storms and heat waves and, and how much the oceans will rise. So according to a new report from the United Nations Environment Program, if you look at where the world needs to be by 2030, World leaders have promised to cut emissions by around 3% at best, you know, compared to 2020 levels. But the science shows emissions need to drop around 45%. Okay, 3%, but emissions should be cut almost in half. That is a dramatic difference. Right, yeah. And it's even bigger when you consider that on the whole, countries are falling behind on the pledges they've made. Today, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres urged developed countries to back up their words with actions and commit to bigger emissions cuts. We are headed for economy-destroying levels of global heating. We need climate action on all fronts, and we need it now. You know, emissions did fall in 2020, but that was largely due to the pandemic because, you know, people weren't traveling and industrial activity fell. Since then, emissions have come right back. And in 2021, emissions from burning coal were at the highest level in history. So if emissions need to fall rapidly by the end of this decade, how does that happen? Would coal use just need to go away entirely? Yeah, there's actually another report out this week where um, it shows from it's from climate change think tanks and it shows where that progress needs to be made. It says coal needs to be phased out by 2030, you know, assuming that the emissions from burning coal aren't captured in some way and kept out of the atmosphere. Um, Claire, Claire Fison worked on that report and she's with Climate Analytics. The power sector is the, the biggest source of CO2 emissions. That's clearly an area where we need to make huge and rapid emissions cuts. It's also an area where we can make really fast emissions cuts because we have renewables now undercutting fossil fuel projects in price. She says renewable energy is growing really rapidly around the world, but it needs to speed up by about six times the current rate. And with world leaders starting climate change negotiations pretty soon, does it look like bigger pledges will be made to cut emissions? I mean, there are a handful of countries maybe that are expected to announce new goals, but you know, all indications are there's not going to be a huge amount of progress. The U.S. announced its goal last year, um, which is to cut emissions basically in half by 2030. Two other major emitters, China and India, plan to increase emissions until 2030. And you know, like some other countries with developing economies, they've pushed back against wealthier countries, saying, you know, you got your shot to boost growth with fossil fuels. You know, it's not fair to deny us the same chance. In the couple of seconds we have left, I know we've seen extreme weather events that seem to illustrate the costs of climate change. I'm thinking about the flooding in Pakistan that displaced millions of people. 
And that's going to be huge in these upcoming talks because smaller countries, you know, who weren't very responsible for causing climate change, they're bearing the brunt and they want bigger countries, wealthier countries to help pay for those damages. Lauren Summer from NPR's climate team, thank you. Thanks so much. We've been talking a lot about how the world is still nowhere close to where it needs to be in the fight against climate change. But now, NPR's Camila Dominoski is going to bring us a little bit of optimism, courtesy of the International Energy Agency. Daniel Ramey sums up 500 pages in a few words. We are not there. We are not close to there. But we are moving in the right direction. Ramey is with the nonprofit Resources for the Future. He reads a lot of reports projecting future oil demand. And this one from the IEA shows real progress. Here's the IEA's executive director, Fatih Birol. For the first time in the current policy settings, we are seeing a peak, a distinct peak of fossil fuels in 20. 30s. A peak of fossil fuels in about 10 years. That means demand will start to go down. The world will use less and less oil, coal, and natural gas year after year after year. That has never happened since the Industrial Revolution began. Of course, for decades, climate scientists have said we need to pivot away from fossil fuels in order to avoid climate change, which will cause tremendous human suffering. So what's new here? Let's rewind. For the first time in the current policy settings. Current policy settings. Biro means policies today, not what the world should do or needs to do. He means this is what the world is on track to do based on the policies governments are announcing now. Policies like the big climate law that Democrats passed this year with a lot of money for green energy, or Europe scrambling to invest in anything that's not Russian oil and natural gas, which meant money for renewables, or clean energy pushes in China and India and Japan. The future that the IEA projects, it would still create catastrophic global warming, well over 1.5 degrees. But it's a major improvement from just a few years ago. And it matters a lot that it's the IEA saying this. It's hardly a radical green group. It was born out of the world's hunger for oil. Henry Kissinger came up with the idea for it during the oil crisis of the 70s. With respect to the oil price, it will not come down by tough declaration. It will come down only when the objective conditions are created which shift the forces of the market. So the IEA was invented to shift the oil market. It's a group of oil-consuming countries and a serious player in energy markets. When the IEA says the world will use less oil, well, that's really good news for the planet, if you buy it. Bob McNally is the founder of Rapidan Energy Group. In between meetings in Houston, the heart of America's energy industry, he squinted at one of the IEA's charts for oil demand. Nobody I know in the oil business believes that. Other outlooks have projected peak oil before, and they've been wrong. And McNally thinks the IEA is way too optimistic that governments will actually follow through on all their policies. The energy industry looks at this and says, this is a dangerous illusion. Uh, while it's perhaps a pleasing idea that the world is going to see a peak in fossil fuel consumption in the next five to 10 years, um, it's, there's no evidence for it. And the fact is that, yeah, it's pretty much impossible to predict what's going to happen. This is a projection based on current policies. What actually happens will depend on what people choose to do. 
people sitting in presidential palaces and boardrooms and C-suites, people casting ballots and visiting dealerships and shopping for heat pumps. To channel a certain diplomat in the 70s, the world's consumption of oil won't go down based on tough declarations. It'll take objective conditions to shift the market. Camila Dominoski with a bit of Henry Kissinger, NPR News. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The performer and business mogul, formerly known as Kanye West, was dropped this week by Adidas due to his most recent anti Semitic comments. They come after years of offensive actions, from his saying slavery was a choice to selling merch with Confederate flags. NPR's Here and Now wanted to put Ye into a broader context. He was praised for being some sort of subversive genius by by doing these things. And I think that's why he was able to get away with it for a long time. That's Karen Atiyah, who's a columnist for The Washington Post. She and Chenjirai Kimanika from NYU's Arthur Carter Journalism Institute spoke with NPR's Here and Now about what to make of the latest yay controversy. Let's listen in. Here's host Celeste Headley. You wrote, Karen, and, and I wanted to get Chenjirai's uh, reaction to this as well. You wrote, Black folks have been speaking out against Kanye for years, but to no avail for all the fuss about the woke mobs and cancel culture, this whole episode makes clear that Black people don't have the structural power to cancel public figures who traffic in anti-Blackness. Understanding that, that anti-Semitic comics are always awful and often lead to really negative real-life consequences for people. I wonder, Chintrai, what you think about this, that it's it's hard for there to be consequences when someone makes an, an anti-Black comment. There's a real risk here that we limit this to Kanye. He should absolutely be held um, accountable. But the reason why his comments resonate with, uh, quite frankly, large parts of America is because they, at different times, have been deeply American. Let's not forget when we talk about anti-Semitism that people in the Third Reich looked to the American model, as uh, James Whitman has talked about, in the, as they shaped the Nuremberg laws. And of course, I'm doing historical work on you know the 19th century and police. You see anti-Semitism throughout that history. Anti-Semitism has been very real in American history. So, and anti-blackness is very real. So there's yeah. a way in which I think that these are American ideas at different times. And, and we, we, what we want to be careful of is not to limit them to make Conley look at such an outlier that we don't get to the root of the problem. Karen, this idea that anti-Semitism, racism, regardless of what group is targeted, um, that can lead to awful consequences and sometimes violence against certain groups. It, it, that would imply that no matter what group is targeted, the response should be the same. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, when we talk about anti-Blackness, anti-Semitism, all of these are, you know, the products of, you know, white European Christian um, constructs. And in very, in many ways, our ideas, what we have, um, what we think about in terms of, of race and the other are rooted in millennia of uh, the persecution of, of Jewish people. So I would hope that at the very least this moment, 
it's a moment to really reflect on what intergroup solidarity um, against white supremacy and these um, baked in ideas uh, should look like. Do you think Ye is being held to a different standard than others are? Well, I, what I think is that no one is entitled to these platforms. Um, you know, the reality is that, sure, Kanye has lost some sponsorships, but let's not act like because Kanye is a black person that we forget that he's also a billionaire, extremely influential. And I think that mm. what we in media have to be careful of is to not actually extend um, his influence under the guise of cancel, quote unquote, canceling him. Chenjirai Kimanika from NYU and Karen Atia of The Washington Post speaking with Here and Now. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A horror scholar shares the best horror movies of the year coming up on WBUR. Tomorrow night at WBUR City Space, celebrate spooky season with the Endless Thread podcast team as it dives into the weird, wild world of bots. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Metropolitan College, offering online undergraduate degree completion in interdisciplinary studies. Build off previously completed college credits and earn your bachelor's degree in as few as 30 months. Learn more at bu.edu met. And the Harvard Art Museums with Dare to Know, a new exhibition exploring the compelling role of prints during the Enlightenment. Free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org. The Bruins are hoping to wrap up their homestand on a victorious note tonight. The Bees host the Detroit Red Wings in a 7 o'clock game. Boston's record is 6-1-0. Pats coach Bill Belichick confirms he's tapping Mac Jones as the quarterback for Sunday's game against the Jets at the Meadowlands. In the forecast, sunshine through the evening hours. Clear skies tonight, down around 40 degrees. Tomorrow, sun's back. Temperatures just about 53 degrees. 65 degrees now in the Boston area. A beautiful day today. The time is 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. For years, legal activists fought to free their client, who was an elephant. They argued that Happy the Elephant is being imprisoned against her will in a New York zoo. Well, earlier this year, the state's highest court rejected that argument, but the question is now out there. If corporations can have some personhood rights, why not animals too? That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. A lot of things can be really scary. Like, for example, a double-booked Airbnb. This is 476 Barbary, right? Yeah, I'm renting this place. No, I booked it a month ago. Are you sure you have the right place? Yeah. Or a phone call from an unexpected phone number. A person shouldn't call out unless they want an answer. Even a party game gone wrong. So how do you play? If you draw the piece of paper that has the X on it, you are the murderer. Let's go. 
All of these frights can be found in horror movies that came out this year. And to help tell us which of these movies are worth watching during the spookiest time of the year is filmmaker and horror scholar Rebecca McEndry. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I am so good. And can I just say, like, I am someone who loves watching scary movies, but only when I'm with somebody. And then when they go home for the night, I immediately regret it because I'm lying in bed all by myself, totally freaked out for hours. And that is why I've now drastically pared down the number of scary movies I will watch. So you tell me, like, what defines this year in horror? I have no idea. Like, what are the movies everyone else seems to be obsessed with right now? Well, I'll start by saying that I like to think of it as if you watch horror movies, you feel like you're never really alone. It's kind of a beautiful feeling to (laughs) to always feel like there's something there. Yeah, yeah, like Um, evil spirits, okay. Right, constantly. But this year has been honestly like a huge year for horror. Like we have had eight horror films open at number one in 2022 with an average um, opening of 26 to 27 million dollars. Like horror is hot right now and 2022 We have seen everything from low-budget indies to massive, massive movies. Why do you think this year has been such a huge year for horror? There's a lot of different theories on this. Like, you know, uh, it takes a lot to get people to go to theaters now. So it's got to be something that is really going to be different. That is kind Uh, of a group viewing experience. So uh where we're really seeing people still head to theaters is kids movies, Marvel movies, and horror. There is something about that, that communal viewing experience with horror. And then there's also kind of, if you look back historically at horror, Horror has always done really, really well, had our best times right after there's a national tragedy. Our our first really big surge of horror happened during and right after the Great Depression. We see horror surge right after Vietnam. We see another surge right after 9-11. And so it makes sense kind of psychologically. Yeah. There's uh, been a couple of books written about um, national trauma and how a lot of people are really able to kind of mitigate what they have just been through by watching horror films, by kind of watching that safe scare. Maybe I need to go back into horror movies to work through my problems. Okay, good to know. It surprisingly works for a lot of us. Somehow it it makes you feel better at the end. Well, let me ask you this. Like, are there some really cool boundary-pushing horror movies this year? So we have seen a lot of really boundary-pushing horror films this year, like ones that are really just trying to hit buttons, ones that you're just like, oh my gosh, that's just going there. Um, Like, I have to give props to Smile. I'm seeing something. It's smiling at me, but not a friendly smile. It's the worst smile I've ever seen in my life. And whenever I see it, I just get this god-awful feeling, like something really terrible is going to happen. Do you see it right now here? There's moments in that that I've never seen in horror before. It is a ride. And it does not hold back on things like the level of scares and the gore, honestly. I also have to definitely give a shout out for Barbarian because that was such a wild ride. The setup of Barbarian seemed very much like some other horror films where it is two people show up at an Airbnb and discover it's been double booked. But where it shifts in the second and third acts, they discover that there is something else 
up with this Airbnb. Uh, it feels weird, but it's a horror comedy. Like it is a dark satirical uh, horror comedy. And it is what makes it work and be number one at the box office. But it is that dark horror comedy that we are laughing that makes it so accessible. Okay, I'm already fascinated. I want to check that out. It's wild and so good. And I'm still like completely floored that that was put out by Disney. <laughs> Oh my God. Well, 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 let me ask you though. Like if you are someone who is so not into gory stuff or, or someone like me who does get super freaked out really easily, specifically when it comes to ghosts, for some reason I cannot do realistic looking ghosts. What would you recommend for us wusses? Like if we want to get into a Halloweeny mood, but we don't want to go into like cardiac arrest when we're watching the movie. Nope is a really fun one um, that is very accessible, that it, it definitely has Peele. some scares. This is Jordan Peele. Um, I also, on the indie level, have to give some love to Deadstream. Now, Deadstream does have some scares in it and small amount of, I'll say, zombie-related gore. Um, oh, but it is I can very- do zombies. Yeah, zombies, most people I've discovered from Walking Dead, like we're a little more desensitized to zombies yeah. than we are a lot of other types of, of carnage. Um, but Deadstream, it is very much a horror comedy. I will be spending one night alone in a haunted house. <laughs> Don't forget to smash that like button, smash that subscribe button and follow me on Libby. And I will also give some um, love to Prey in that realm as well. And this one came straight to Hulu. It is part of the Predator franchise, but you can go in with no knowledge of any of the Predators that have come before. Um, nice. It is lighter on the gore um, <laughs> to a degree. I will say there still is some, but if for like even my parents who are much more into action films watched Prey and absolutely loved it. Is there like such a thing as a comfort horror movie for you like one you return to over and over again the way like some people watch When Harry Met Sally over and over again. Do you have a horror movie like that? Oh my goodness, yes. And that's what I've discovered that most horror fans will gravitate to around Halloween is this is the season when we watch things like Trick or Treat or um, other kind of Halloween-centered films that really just give you the warm and fuzzies. And what's <laughs> interesting is I think that this year some of the larger studios have really become aware of this because Hocus Pocus is one that I would have considered to be huh. a comfort. It's what I consider gateway horror. It's like what I yeah. show um, my 10-year-old daughter. Right. And it's one of those, right like, it's her. what you show spooky kids, um, spooky kids who like spooky <laughs> things. And Disney realized this and realized like, oh my gosh, over decades, this movie has grown into a huge cult hit. And they, so this year, one of the biggest horror films of the year that I consider horror is Hocus Pocus 2 and it is ushering in a whole new wave of horror fans and I gotta say it's just as good as the first one if not better it's great maybe that's gonna be my genre of horror movie that is Rebecca McEndry a scholar and filmmaker whose horror movie Glorious was released on the streaming service Shudder this year thank you so much Rebecca this was so much fun oh my gosh thank you so much for having me please go watch something spooky this season I think I will. You're listening to All Screams Considered from NPR Booze. <laughs> Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. 
Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at AthenaHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual open house November 30th, buacademy.org. And Volante Farms in Needham, hosting their 10th annual Pumpkin Fest to benefit Cradles to Crayons, October 29th. More info at volantefarms.com. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. expects to provide weaponry to Ukraine for months and even years to come. U.S. defense officials are confident they can meet the demand, but there are real-world challenges ahead. Our story is coming up on this Thursday, October 27th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Facebook and Instagram's parent company Meta announces another drop in revenue. A North Carolina woman describes what happened when she received a serious prenatal genetic diagnosis when she was 18 weeks pregnant. And a new study finds that video games might have some positive effects on children's cognitive skills. We are seeing brain activation changes in, in key areas of the brain. We'll break down the study's findings. It's 501 News Headlines and the mixed picture on Wall Street coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Joe Biden has just wrapped up an appearance in Syracuse, New York, where the president touted a significant investment by the U.S.-based company Micron in a new manufacturing facility. The company plans to spend $100 million on what Biden called a massive semiconductor plant to be built 15 miles north of Syracuse. He says the plant will create as many as 9,000 jobs. Here in America to build factories to make semiconductors or small little computer chips to power everything in our everyday lives, from our smartphones to our automobiles to washing machines, hospital equipment, you name it. It's the largest American investment of its kind ever, ever, ever in our history. Biden said the U.S. once had 30 percent of the global computer chip market, a technology he notes the U.S. invented. Biden's appearance, where he also touted stronger economic growth numbers, comes just 12 days before the crucial midterm elections. Canada has sent an assessment team to Haiti to see how to help police there open up aid routes now blocked by armed gangs. The U.S. has been talking to Canada about a possible international intervention, but so far no country's taken the lead, as we hear from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Canada's Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie says Haiti is facing political, humanitarian and security crises, and her team there is trying to assess how Canada can help on all three fronts. We will always support solutions that are by and for Haitians. 
She was speaking in Ottawa alongside Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who says the U.S. and Canada are talking to countries in the region about the potential for an international intervention. Armed gangs have been blocking fuel and aid routes in the capital as Haiti battles a cholera outbreak. Blinken says his first goal is to break what he calls the security knot that's keeping help from getting in. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Home mortgage rates are now officially above 7 percent nationally. That's according to the most watched survey by the industry giant Freddie Mac. As NPR's Chris Otto reports it's a 20-year high. People of a certain age will say, oh, I remember when rates of 7 or 8 percent were the norm. But we've also just had a very big run-up in prices, up 30 to 40 percent nationally during the pandemic. Joel Kahn is with the Mortgage Bankers Association. We have seen this double whammy, a combination of home prices that are still high and rates that have increased dramatically from a year ago. Rates rising from 3 to 7 percent, so four points higher in a single year. That hasn't happened for 40 years, and many people just can't afford it. Khan says the number of people applying to get a mortgage is at its lowest level since 1997. Chris Arnold, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow's up 194 points. The Nasdaq fell 178 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts economy grew more slowly than the national economy did in the third quarter. Mass Benchmarks reports the state's real gross domestic product increased a half of a percent. Nationally, the GDP came in at 2.6 percent annually. Local economists blame slower job growth and the impact rising interest rates are having on housing and on tech and life science companies. The economists say while inflation remains well above target levels, it does not appear to be accelerating. With the midterm elections less than two weeks away, a national poll from Bentley University in Waltham and Gallup finds Republicans and Democrats are sharply divided over the impact of the federal government. The poll found 57 percent of Democrats think Washington is effective at improving people's lives, compared to only 24 percent of Republicans. Bentley political science professor Jeff Galati says 57 percent thought the business sector did a better job of improving their daily lives. You think about when the federal government does something, it's based on compromise. But when it comes to business, people can kind of latch on to the ones that they see that share their own uh, own values. Meanwhile, the director of polling at the Harvard Kennedy School Institute of Politics is expecting a Gen Z wave this election. John Della Volpe says the Institute's national poll of young people shows 40 percent of voters between 18 and 29 say they will definitely vote in the November elections. That's on track to match or exceed the record-breaking youth vote turnout in 2018. And in sports, Mac Jones will start a quarterback for the Pats on Sunday. Coach Bill Belichick made that clear today. I took a full workload yesterday. I expect him to be fully available here for the game and ready to go. 64 degrees now in the Boston area. After a glorious October day, we should have a beautiful night, but a chilly one down around 40 degrees tonight. Tomorrow's sun's back, rising to 53 degrees. 64 degrees now under blue skies in Boston. It's 5.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. When the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, the decision hit like an earthquake. In many states, the impact was immediate. Minutes after the Supreme Court's decision, Missouri's attorney general making the state the first in the country to effectively ban abortion. Here in Kentucky, abortions are now illegal. Today. In 11 states, from Oklahoma to Kentucky, abortion. Signature making abortions illegal in Arkansas. With the only As new bans took effect, doctors and hospitals and lawyers all struggled to adjust. But the biggest effect? has been on individual Americans and their families. Today, we're launching a new series called Days and Weeks about how the new laws are affecting people's lives. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin is here to tell us more about the series. Hey there. Hi, Elsa. So tell us about the people you've been hearing from. Oh, it's a huge range of people. I mean, I talked to a 14-year-old. We heard from people in their mid-40s, from Michigan to Georgia to Arizona. It's it's just incredible how many different people have been affected in a variety of ways. Yeah. Yeah. So who do you want to introduce us to first? First, I want to introduce you to Carla Renee and her husband, Sam Renee. They live in a little house outside of Raleigh, and their house is surrounded by fragrant pine trees. Wow, it smells so good. I visited them earlier this month. All right, come in. I'm Sam. Nice to meet you guys. Inside, the house was covered in Halloween decorations, like a witch hat on the record player, a skeleton decoration on the wall. As soon as it was fall, I was like, we got to raise our spirits. We got to get some Halloween in here, make it spooky. So <laughs> here's the backstory on why they needed to brighten up the house. Carla got a surprise positive pregnancy test in April. She had tried to get pregnant in the past and she expected to need fertility treatments. We were ecstatic. For it to just happen naturally felt like a miracle. She was eight weeks pregnant at her first appointment with an OBGYN. The doctor noted that since I'll be 35 when the baby was due, I should take a screening test for genetic anomalies. Um, and, we, and we agreed to do the test, and, and we scheduled our next appointment for a month out. For the next few weeks, Carla says she was just blissfully pregnant. But at the 12-week appointment, during an ultrasound, the doctor noticed something unusual. Extra fluid had accumulated behind the neck of the fetus. Their doctor couldn't give them a lot of clarity about what that meant. She explained that lots of babies have this and, and they can recover on their own. Um, but it's still something to watch because it could be an indication of something more serious. Meanwhile, their first round of genetic screening from a blood test indicated things were probably fine. It also told them they were having a girl. We felt relief and we felt hope and we started to call her Amber. But because of what the doctor had seen on the ultrasound, she recommended a second, more comprehensive genetic test, amniocentesis. So at 16 weeks, the amnio needle went in, fluid came out, and these results take up to two to three weeks. So it was just, <laughs> there was nothing we could do but, but wait and, and hope and pray. On June 27th, the results from the amniocentesis finally came in. Their fetus had a genetic condition called monosomy 18P. And here is what Carla and Sam Renee want people to remember in the debate about abortion. It wasn't until 18 weeks into their pregnancy that they finally got confirmation that something was seriously wrong. A whole arm of her chromosome was completely gone. This, this was classified as a severe chromosomal deletion. Their doctor said their daughter would probably have serious intellectual and physical disabilities. 
The Renees were in shock, but they didn't have much time to process. They had to decide quickly whether to continue or terminate the pregnancy. North Carolina had a 1973 law on the books that banned abortion at 20 weeks. It wasn't officially reinstated yet, but after the Supreme Court ruling, everyone was acting as if it was. Because Roe v. Wade has just been overturned, hospitals are taking no chances with legal liability. The Renees were told if they were going to end the pregnancy, they had to do it before 20 weeks or they would have to travel out of state. So they had just a few days to determine the course of the rest of their lives. This extended timeline with weeks of uncertainty and waiting for more test results is very common when there's a problem with fetal development, says Dr. Neetha Vora. She's a professor of OBGYN at UNC Chapel Hill and the director of reproductive genetics there. She says around 20 weeks is when many genetic conditions are diagnosed or when doctors spot a problem during the anatomy scan ultrasound, which typically takes place at 20 weeks as well. The genetic testing takes time, meeting with the specialist takes time. But another thing that takes time is the decision-making process, right? You can't make decisions so quickly when these are probably the hardest decisions you people have to make in their whole life. She says when people live in a state with a gestational limit on abortion, they may not have much time to decide what to do. It's not a fast process. It's not It's not meant to be a fast process, but now artificially it is becoming a fast process, and that's, that's very difficult for people. For Sam and Carla Renee, the clock was ticking. Those days were kind of a frenzy of research. Monosomy 18P is a rare disorder. People with the condition can have head and face malformations and other physical and mental disabilities, but which ones really depend on how much of the chromosome is missing. Doctors told Carla and Sam that in their case, the chromosomal arm was totally gone. They stressed symptoms would likely be severe. We didn't know if she could use her legs. We never felt her kick, not even once. She could have needed surgery on her organs. There was indications that she might have needed surgery on her jaw just to be able to eat. We didn't know if she'd be able to speak. A follow-up ultrasound had also shown their fetus now had a cystic hygroma, a type of cyst that can increase the risk of skeletal and heart problems, even death. When you combine all of those physical and mental and emotional pieces together, I couldn't ask my daughter to walk that path. It's too much. I wanted her so much. I felt it would be selfish to ask her to stay and to go through all that just for us to be parents. So after 19 weeks of a pregnancy marked in turn by delight and then uncertainty and then shock, Carla and Sam Renee decided to end their pregnancy. Carla says making that decision was an immense responsibility she feels is rightfully hers. I'm the one who has to live with this. I'm the one who has to make the call. Once she made that call, there was a scramble to schedule her, and at 19 weeks and six days, Sam and Carla went to the hospital for an abortion. The doctors were incredibly compassionate and professional. I'll never be grateful enough for how they took care of us when our world was falling apart. When Carla woke up, she found someone had put fuzzy gray socks on her feet. 
She felt cared for. She kept them. The Renees didn't do a burial, but they did make a little memorial spot. It's out in the woods behind their house near a circle of ferns, a stone marker with a wing on it. Sam bends down to gently lift a slug off the stone. He comes out here and cleans it off. Carla says she looks out at it from her window every morning. Even from way up there, that wing is just like bright white. So I look out the window and I see that and I, I feel like there she is, you know. There's her angel wing. Wow. This is such a brutal story, Selena. I, I can't imagine making a decision like this in mere days. And, you know, as I was listening, I get why you're calling this series Days and Weeks. Yeah, I mean, that is how doctors have always measured the progress of a pregnancy. It's also the basis for many of these new anti-abortion laws. You know, there are six-week bans and 15-week bans and so forth. And in many of the stories we'll be sharing in this series, there's a tension in the forward march of pregnancy and these limits getting closer and closer. One person told us as soon as she got pregnant, all she could think of was a giant ticking clock. Yeah. But even with these gestational limits on abortion, I mean, don't some restrictive states have exceptions for fetal anomalies? Actually, it's very few. Many states have exceptions for, quote, the life of the mother or rape and incest, but fetal anomaly exceptions are very uncommon. Some abortion rights opponents say terminating because of a fetal abnormality is the same as not valuing the lives of people with disabilities. I should say I spoke to a disability rights advocate who pushed back on this and supports people making their own reproductive decisions, not the state. In North Carolina, there is no exception for fetal anomalies. The Republican leader of the state Senate has said he favors a limit at 12 or 15 weeks, although he said a bill won't be introduced until sometime after the new year. And 12 weeks of pregnancy is earlier than some prenatal test results are available. Right. Well, how are Carla and Sam doing now? They're still processing and healing. Carla says it feels strange to watch the news these days. It's surreal watching people fight about whether I should have had the right. She says people who had a similar experience to hers aren't usually part of the political debates on abortion. I don't think it's because we don't want to be considered or included. It's that this is such a deep and private pain. And it's hard to talk about. Despite that pain, Carla does want to be part of the conversation, and that's why she's sharing her story. That was NPR's Selena Simmons Duffin. Thank you so much for this story, Selena. You're welcome. And if you have a story to share about new abortion laws in your state and how they're affecting you, you can reach us at npr.org slash abortion laws. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, has another drop in revenue. And later, WBUR's favorite local music entry to NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by University of New England, Maine's largest private university, on campuses in Portland and coastal Biddeford, and online, une.edu. 
Ups and downs on Wall Street. The Dow was up six-tenths of a percent, 194 points, to close at 32,033. S&P was down the same amount, 0.61 percent, to finish the day at 3,807. The Nasdaq lost the most ground. It was down 1.63 percent to close at 10,793. Waltham may be gaining a new gastropub, one that closed a couple of years ago in Alston. Reports from Eater Boston say Deep Ellum may move into the space on Moody Street in Waltham. Officials went before the Waltham License Commission this week in hopes of taking over the space the GAF occupies. The plan is for the new Deep Ellum to serve food, craft beer and cocktails and possibly feature live music. It's 519. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Blue skies and sunshine take us through the remainder of the afternoon and the evening. A clear night ahead tonight. A chilly breeze down around 40 degrees. Sunshine should make a comeback tomorrow. Still breezy, not quite as mild as today was. Should be about 53 degrees tops. 63 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's Gummies. Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Facebook parent company Meta has hit a serious rough patch. So far this year, it has lost half a trillion dollars in market value. And today, its stock continued to crater. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen joins us now to explain why Meta is being battered and what it means to the broader economy. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Elsa. So it seemed like for a long time, big tech companies like Meta never seemed to stop growing, like every quarter meant bigger profits, a more valuable company. What changed here? Yeah, well, quite a bit, actually. And there's both big picture things that have changed and some things that are particular to Meta. Zooming out a bit, remember how Meta makes money advertising, right? Mm -hmm. About 98% of its revenue comes from ads. And the landscape for digital advertising is really shaky right now. Fears of a recession and the war in Ukraine has meant companies are pulling back out of caution. Also not helping social media apps like Facebook is that Apple has made some changes that makes it a lot harder for companies to target people with personal ads. Okay, so some larger changes. But you mentioned that there are some things dragging Meta down that are unique to the company. What are they? First one, TikTok. It remains a huge global success. We all know it. It's really giving Meta a run for its money. TikTok has forced Instagram and Facebook to double down on in-app videos. But, you know, in the world of short viral videos, TikTok is still king. Another huge factor is... Well, the whole meta thing. (laughs) The company (laughs) changed its name last year to Uh reflect a pivot to the metaverse. You know, this kind of virtual reality where CEO Mark Zuckerberg says everyone will eventually be living and working one day. Right. And how is that going? (laughs) How is it going? 
poorly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meta, um, you know, they're building a team of some 10,000 people to create its version of the metaverse. It's promoting its $1,500 virtual reality headset. How exciting. But, you know, <laughs> people are just not following, Elsa. I mean, the effort is gobbling up billions of dollars. And Zuckerberg says, okay, everyone, cool your jets. This is a long-term vision. It's going to take many years to catch on, but investors are just getting frustrated. The Wall Street Journal obtained documents that show that Meta's flagship virtual reality game, Verizon Worlds, has very few users. The report found that Meta's own employees are not using Metaverse products. So, yeah, that's a little embarrassing. But (laughs) in all, the whole Metaverse thing is an unproven idea and it's just burning an incredible amount of cash right now. Okay, so obviously hard times for Meta, which means, you know, not a great time for a Meta shareholder right now. But how much does any of this matter to, say, like someone who doesn't hold Meta stock? Yeah, well, Silicon Valley giants, including Meta, drive the stock market. For instance, you know, more than a quarter of the S&P 500's value is from tech stocks. And so when tech declines, the market starts hurting. Mm -hmm. And that can have far-reaching effects into our pocketbooks. It can lead to borrowing costs going up for companies and products eventually getting more expensive. It could put a dent in retirement savings. It could impact how people feel about stocks, uh, tech stocks or stocks in general, and that could have a contagion effect. There are all kinds of ways in which bad economic fortunes for Meta can be bad for everyone. Now, part of Mark Zuckerberg's job is to be optimistic. So he mentioned the good news yesterday, which is on Instagram and WhatsApp, the user base is actually growing. And he told investors he appreciates their patience with the metaverse because at least Mark Zuckerberg thinks those who are patient will end up being rewarded. Patience. That is NPR's Bobby (laughs) Allen. Thank you so much, Bobby. Thanks, Elsa. For a time in the 90s and early 2000s, some people considered video games an intellectual and moral threat to kids. That perception has changed over time, due in part to research that suggests otherwise. A new study in the Journal of the American Medical Association finds that video games may actually have a positive effect on children's cognitive skills. And here to break down exactly what all of that means is University of Vermont professor Bader Charani, the lead author on the study. Hi there. Thank you for having me. If you can, tell us a little bit more about your personal relationship to video games. What made you want to study this specifically? Video gaming for for me was um, something I do at the end of a very long day at work as a form of distress. I know that the video gaming industry is increasing and we have kids that spend a report spending 15 and 16 hours per day. So it's very critical to see if there's any kind of either negative or positive impacts of this activity that our kids are spending so much time doing it daily on a daily basis. And just looking big picture here, what were the top line findings of your research? So we found basically that children who play three hours or more of video gaming per day outperform kids who never played any type of video games in terms of um, impulse control and working memory. In addition to this better performance, we are seeing brain activation changes in, in key areas of the brain involved in vision, attention, and memory processing. 
you and I both know our way around the world of video games a little bit. So as I'm thinking about this, I would imagine that playing a game like Call of Duty or Grand Theft Auto might have a different effect on your brain than if you're sitting down to play The Sims or Animal Crossing. So I want to ask you, does your research suggest that certain video games are better for the brain than others? We did not include that in this study. However, there are smaller studies that suggest that action-adventure and fast-paced games may have a different um, impact on the brain and behavior than problem-solving problem and logic games. However, at this age, 9 to 10 years old, there are international surveys done on a very large number of kids suggesting that the majority play fast-paced games, namely, like you mentioned, Call of Duty or GTA or like racing. And a very small amount plays those that involve logic and problem solving and puzzles. So the effect we're seeing here, although we don't have the data, there's a high probability that it's linked to kids that play most of fast-paced games. Hmm. So bottom line, for a parent who may be concerned about how much time their kid is spending in front of a screen or with a controller in their hand playing video games, what can this research tell them? So there is obviously a negative outcome that results from extended screen time um, on the mental health and the physical health. However, if that kid is spending one, two, or three hours on video gaming, maybe there are some benefits, as our data suggests. Um, these benefits could not be seen if that kid is doing or spending time on other forms of screen time, like texting or um, watching TVs or YouTube, which are considered more as passive um, screen time forms. That's Bader Charani, lead author of a new study published in JAMA on the effect of video games on child cognition. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me again. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. After a beautiful day, we should have a cold night tonight, falling to about 40 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine's back. Temperatures only peaking out at about 53. Saturday, bright and sunny, around 60. For Sunday, partly to mostly sunny, warming to about 63 degrees. Tonight, the Bruins will be skating on TD Garden Ice as they host the Detroit Red Wings. The Bees have got a three-game winning streak going. Game time tonight is 7 o'clock. And the Boston Book Festival kicks off tomorrow and runs through Saturday. WBUR hosts will be there. If you'd like to be there as well and want details, go to WBUR.org slash events. 62 degrees now in Boston at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Chestnut Hill School, leading the way in elementary education since 1860. Grow today. Transform tomorrow. On the web at tchs.org and Boston Ballets, as anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org.
Auto sears, or switches, turn pistols into machine guns. Chicago police are seizing more of them at a time when a bigger share of the city's shootings are mass shootings. Not just here, everywhere in the country is seeing just an explosion of switches and extended high-capacity magazines. What an investigation reveals about the spread of rapid-fire adapters. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Ukrainian forces are, gain, are gaining ground attacking Russia's hold on the southern city of Kherson, one of four Ukrainian provinces that Moscow recently annexed and claimed as its own. Authorities say even Russian-appointed authorities in the city have fled, along with thousands of residents. Meanwhile, White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says... The U.S. will continue to support Ukraine's efforts to push back Russian forces. We continue to see uh, terrific uh, bipartisan support, both sides of the aisle, for our approach uh, on supporting Ukraine. Um, and that's been the case uh, throughout the last eight months, and it's hard to believe we're at eight months now of this war. Um, uh, and we believe that that support will, will continue going forward. Kirby says there is no blank check for Ukraine. The funding is already worked out with bipartisan support from Congress. So far, the U.S. has committed about $19 billion in security assistance. Black patients who seek medical care for COVID-19 have been getting treatments at lower rates than white patients. A new study from the CDC shows big disparities in access to COVID pills, as NPR's Ping Huang reports. This year, more than 5 million courses of Paxlovid have been given out. The prescription-only pill can be a lifesaver for patients who just tested positive for COVID and are at high risk of getting worse. But a new paper from the CDC finds racial and ethnic disparities among who's getting them. Through July this year, black patients with COVID were 36% less likely to receive Paxlovid than white patients. Asian, Hispanic, and Native American patients were 20 to 30% less likely to get Paxlovid, too. The study authors say that in areas with more residents who are low income and minorities, access to medical care may be limited. People there may also be less aware of the drug's benefits. Ping Huang, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. We're finding out more about the 107 people the state is temporarily housing at a hotel in Kingston. The Kingston town administrator, Keith Hickey, says they are all Massachusetts residents. Hickey met with the state this afternoon. He says he was told most of the people are immigrants who live in the state and they are not new arrivals. What I heard today was that some of these individuals may have had permanent housing, uh, but because the eviction proceedings have begun again, that uh, they may have been evicted from previous housing. There seems to be a variety of, of reasons that these people may have been homeless. Some pandemic-era protections against eviction in Massachusetts expired earlier this year. Hickey says the state wants to move the people into permanent housing by the end of the year. Boston-based Partners in Health is receiving $25 million to study how health care can best be delivered around the globe. The Weiss Asset Management Foundation is pledging the funds over the next 25 years. Partners in Health says it will use the money to figure out how to tailor health care to populations historically underserved by medicine. One-third of the state is out of drought conditions. 
The U.S. Drought Monitor finds no drought in 39 percent of the state. That's up from 12 percent last week. However, a majority of the state does remain abnormally dry with the most severe conditions on Cape Ann. Starting next week, you will not be able to throw out that old mattress in the trash. That goes for bedding, towels, curtains and clothes, too. The State Department of Environmental Protection says all of it will need to be recycled curbside starting November 1st. Check your community's recycling regulations. The state says the items are difficult and expensive to manage and take up a lot of landfill space. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Central Square Theater with Lloyd Suh's critically acclaimed play, The Chinese Lady. Begins November 10th, centralsquaretheater.org. Right now, 63 degrees in the Boston area should fall all the way to 40 overnight tonight. Tomorrow, sunshine returns, temperatures peaking at about 53 degrees. And then for Saturday, bright and sunny, about 60. Sunday is looking like it should be sunny, maybe a few clouds around Sunday, warming to just about a 63. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The U.S. is sending billions of dollars in powerful weapons to Ukraine so it can fight off the Russian invasion. But that effort is leading to some shortages, not only in the weapons themselves, but also in the parts that they need. Among them, ball bearings. To explain what I just said, we're joined now by NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman and NPR Global Economics correspondent Stacey Vanek-Smith. Hey to both of you. Hello. Hello. Okay, Tom, I want to start with you because, I mean, ball bearings? This is not something I would ever think would run out. It's crazy. I couldn't believe it when I first heard it. You think it's like running out of safety pins or something. Right. So I went down to my local hardware store, and I have a handful of ball bearings right now. Nice. And uh, a Pentagon official I spoke with said, listen. These are not the kind of ball bearings you find at a local hardware store. These are precision ball bearings built to a higher standards. And ball bearings are used in all sorts of military hardware, things like guidance systems, artillery, armored vehicles. The ball bearings help uh, facilitate motion. They reduce friction and position moving machine parts. Now, the Pentagon says it's meeting all its current contracts and all are with U.S. companies. So it's not like they're running out. But clearly, you know, it's an issue for them. And military officials tell me now they're talking with industry about how we can create more ball bearings and move faster. Never would have imagined. Stacey, I understand that you have been talking with ball bearing industry types, which I imagine is a first, even for you. (laughs) It Um, is. What are they telling you? Like, are they ramping up production? They are trying to ramp up production. Um, Everyone I spoke with said that they were seeing demand increase, especially over the last few months, and they are trying to meet that demand. And so far, it seems like everybody I spoke with was meeting demand, but they're running into some pretty 
serious roadblocks. For one thing, most ball bearings are made out of steel, and steel has gotten a lot more expensive. Steel Mm. prices have actually more than doubled over the last couple of years. Mm. Part of that is because Russia was one of the biggest steel exporters in the world. A lot of countries will not buy Russian steel right now, Mm -hmm. and that has created kind of a global shortage, which has pushed prices up. And even for companies that can pay those higher prices, steel's just gotten harder to come by as well. Uh, I spoke with David Dahl. He's the head of New England Miniature Ball. It makes nearly 3 billion ball bearings every year. Some are just tiny, the size of sesame seeds. Some Uh are bigger, the size of marbles. Uh, And he has contracts with these big companies, with aerospace companies and things like that. Obviously, important orders to fill. But actually getting the steel to fill those orders has become a real issue, even though he can pay the higher prices. Sometimes we have to wait a little while to get the steel that we need. We're small companies. So like if Ford or somebody wanted a bunch of steel, guess who's going to get it first, right? You have to really plan. It can be uh, months before this is when the order will ship. So Dahl said also labor is another big wall he's hitting up against in trying to increase production. Uh, He currently has about 100 employees, and he says finding more workers just has been really, really tough. He's raised pay. He said he's willing to train people. But finding workers that will help his company increase production has gotten really hard. So fascinating. Who knew ball bearings were so important, so fundamental? Okay, so Tom, are there any other weapons parts that the Pentagon is concerned about right now? Well, uh, also rocket motors. And they're using everything from shoulder-fired Stinger and Javelin missiles up to the larger ones fired by trucks. Now thousands upon thousands of missiles are being sent to Ukraine, not only from the U.S., but also NATO countries. Now, the rocket motors are only made by two companies, Northrop Grumman and Aerojet. Now, with Aerojet, they've maxed out production, and they have three shifts going at its plant in Arkansas. And again, the demand is being met, but they want to ramp things up. So the Pentagon is working with these companies as well, uh, trying to figure out how to increase production. It could be renting or buying a new manufacturing plant, uh, buying new equipment. And as Stacy mentioned, you know, th- it's a labor thing, too. So <laughs> now it could be the company and the Pentagon split the cost. So that's kind of what's going on right now. Okay, so potential shortage in rocket motors, ball bearings, any other shelves that are bare or could be bare? Yes. Computer chips is another big potential Mm. sticking point. Uh, Obviously, we've heard about this in the context of things like cars. Mm. Um, Mm. A lot of us bought a lot more electronics at the start of COVID, and there was a big demand for chips and production of chips was down. So that chip shortage has just caused all kinds of issues across the whole economy. And, you know, it just takes a while for supply chains to normalize, even though apparently that is getting better, the chip shortage. So do we expect all of these potential shortages to be a concern for quite some time? Uh, Yes, likely years. The Pentagon's looking pretty far down the road at all these components because officials say they expect to provide Ukraine with weapons for a long, long time. And it's not just Ukraine again. The U.S. will have to replenish its own stocks of weapons. So, too, will the allies. So everyone's going to need a steady stream of ball bearings, rocket motors, and computer chips. I also think this is just such a fascinating story because it shows how how really interconnected economies across the world have become. And there's just not much of a cushion when supply is disrupted. It can take a while for things to bounce back. Absolutely. That is NPR Global Economics correspondent Stacey Vanek-Smith and NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman. Thank you to both of you. You're welcome. Thanks, Elsa.
This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Every year, one lucky independent musician is launched into the national spotlight as the winner of NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. Here in Massachusetts, nearly 150 local musical acts entered this year's contest. WBUR arts reporter and critic Amelia Mason listened to all of them. She and four other panelists selected WBUR's favorite local entry to NPR's Tiny Desk Contest, Lee Zangari, and their song, A Man is a Man. A man is a man is a man, says he, as far as I can see. Zangari is a singer-songwriter from Quincy who plays the stringed instrument, the Mountain Dulcimer. In the latest installment of Sound On, our series about rising local musicians, Amelia Mason tells us about Zangari's distinct, slightly experimental twist on folk music and why it might catch your ear. A Man is a Man is a quiet song, and I think it's easy to overlook. But we were really drawn to the spare arrangement and its kind of twisty, mesmerizing melody. As far as I can see. The lyrics also really stood out. To me, the line, a man is a man is a man, said he, as far as I can see, sounds like someone denying another person's expression of maybe an unconventional gender identity. And Zangari, who uses they, them pronouns, said this was definitely on their mind. But they wanted the song to work on more than one level. Trans experiences, when they're abstracted or turned into metaphor are often very appealing to broad audiences because I think that gender is is so easily a stand-in for many other things. I could be a winged calling bird in flight I could be a shadow vanished in the night and then Zangari really has a way with metaphor, and I love how they capture that desire that many people feel of wanting to be other than you are. The instrument you're hearing, the mountain dulcimer, is a thin, hollow-bodied instrument from Appalachia with four strings and frets, and you play it on your lap. It was big during the folk revival of the 60s, and probably the most famous player was the Kentucky folk singer Gene Ritchie. Zangari wasn't raised on folk music, though. Their dad's a jazz pianist. And Zangari would sometimes have a cameo singing at his gigs. But they never played any instruments until college. And at that point, Zangari says they'd just broken up with someone they were dating, and that person was a guitar player. So they lost this relationship and a musical collaborator. So their parents gave them a dulcimer to cheer them up. They wanted to give me something that was like, it's going to make you feel like you can accompany yourself. A mountain dulcimer is a very beginner-friendly instrument. It's hard to accidentally play a wrong note. So Zangari found that simplicity freeing. I had a lot of hang-ups about like, I can't play an instrument, I'll be bad at it. And I didn't know 
what it would be to be bad at the dulcimer because I didn't know what it would be to be good at it. So I was just like playing. Zangari's songs aren't particularly autobiographical. They tend to write songs that are stories, which is actually how a lot of old traditional folk songs are. But Zangari's influences are more varied and sometimes kind of experimental. They'll pull from the writing of the sci-fi author Ursula Le Guin, or sometimes they'll just open up a dictionary to a random page to find inspiration. And when like words are in alphabetical order in the dictionary, there are things that you would never put together in life that are together because of some kind of arbitrary coincidence. Zangari came up with one song, Sundew, when they were reading about carnivorous plants. And um, thinking about something that is beautiful, but also dangerous and like is a larger thing that consumes smaller things. The lyrics of the song, like they kind of move from the very small to the very large and then back to the very small again. The oil skin, the fisherman, the marrow in the rib. Like the rain jacket that this person is wearing and then the person and then something inside of them. And then it like expands to like the ocean. There are all of these things in the world. There's so much scale and so many things that are interacting so complexly. And then also there's me and then you and then me and then you. Zangari has written over 70 songs, but they've only recorded a few EPs and demos over the years. And they've worked alone recording at home. Now they're finishing up their first studio album, and it'll have other musicians on it. I'm really looking forward to hearing how Zangari expands their solitary world. For Amelia Mason's full write-up on Lee Zangari, go to WBUR.org. Funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Coming up on WBUR, the World Series between Houston and Philadelphia is tonight. We'll have a preview. By the way, on this day in 2004, the Red Sox won their first World Series since 1918, sweeping the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 4, 3 to nothing. In other sports, current sports, the Boston Bruins are hoping to wrap up their homestand on a victorious note tonight. The Bees host the Detroit Red Wings in a 7 o'clock game. Boston's record is 6-1-0. And Pats coach Bill Belichick confirms he's tapping Mac Jones as quarterback for Sunday's game against the Jets at the Meadowlands. 
Forecast clear tonight, chilly down around 40 degrees. Sunshine is back tomorrow with highs about 53 degrees. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Donald Trump, just two years ago, lost New York by 23 points. Biden won by 23 points. It's been 20 years since New York elected a Republican governor, and yet here we are just two weeks before Election Day, and races all across the state, including for governor, have gotten way too close for Democrats' comfort. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. All right, baseball's World Series gets underway tomorrow night. It's a matchup between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Houston Astros. The seemingly invincible Astros are back in the series for the fourth time in six years, led by veteran manager Dusty Baker. They're also undefeated so far in the playoffs. Meanwhile, the Phillies squeaked into the postseason as a wild card team, but they've definitely impressed on their way to making their first World Series appearance since 2009. So let's preview the action with Washington Post national baseball writer Chelsea James. Hey there. Hi, how are you? Good. Okay, so another season down and the Houston Astros are back in the World Series. I know you covered their sweep of the New York Yankees in the run up to all of this. Can you just tell us like just how good is this Houston team? They've been outstanding. You know, during the the regular season they didn't have as many wins as you know maybe one other team. So by that standard, you know, people kind of were sleeping on them, I think, but they, they're dominant. They, they are really well-rounded. They've got a lot of depth. This time of year, you start to see teams get broken down by injuries and everyone kind of wears down and they just show no signs of it. So they're, they're unique. Well, what about the Houston manager, Dusty Breaker? Like he's had this legendary career, but he's missing a World Series title as manager. He wasn't there when the Astros last won it all in 2017. What, have Baker and the players said about their chances this year? I think they feel good. I think he has been around the game long enough, as have, you know, the Astros been around these championship kind of uh, series enough to know that they're not promised anything. I think that they know that there's kind of no guarantees here that you have to get here and then take your chances. So I think everyone's sort of cautiously optimistic, but I know they would love to get Dusty, you know, his first title. He's He's got this amazing wide-ranging career, has touched many people's lives in this sport, and uh, you know, he's he's getting older. And I think, you know, there's a there's a feeling that maybe he can ride off into the sunset here and, and get one and then be done with it. And and we'll see what happens. OK, well, let's turn to the Phillies. They are the underdogs heading into this series, but they're still really good. Like in what ways have they been impressive to you? They have been impressive because they were a mess a few months ago. <laughs> I mean, they were such a mess. In fact, that they fired their manager, that they you know, no one knew what they were doing. They had spent all this money and it was just completely imploding. And, you know, little by little, they started to kind of climb their way back in and they've just been magical. I mean, it's, it's baseball is one of those sports where if you get momentum and think you can do things, you probably can. And, uh, you know, this time of year, it really, it matters to kind of have the vibes that they do. Is there anything in particular that you're keeping an eye out for in this series? Um, you know, I think the, one person that made a huge impact last series and and probably will have a great deal to do with how the Phillies fare here is is Bryce Harper. He 
you know, has been this highly touted player since he was 15 years old and all the expectations that came with it almost couldn't exceed them. They were too high. He has somehow met them. This is his first World Series, his first chance on the stage, and he's been incredible this postseason. And I think, you know, if he can kind of put them on his back, then then they're going to be in good shape. So, Chelsea, if you were to, like, close your eyes and imagine you are at the World Series final game, can I ask you, which team do you see winning? I think the Astros probably do it <laughs> in the end. I think they they Once again. outlast almost everyone. Yeah, and so it's cool because it's really hard to say. That's not an easy question to answer, so it's it's definitely no luck. It's definitely not a lock. That is Chelsea Janes, national baseball writer for The Washington Post, joining us from Minute Maid Park in Houston. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Need some joy in your life? A break from thinking about what to cook for dinner or which bills are due? NPR's I'm Really Into series is here to help. Here's Marielle Segarra, host of NPR's Life Kit. She has been queuing up the 1998 movie Practical Magic just about every fall since she was nine years old. Practical magic takes place in New England, and most of the action happens in this gorgeous old house on a cliffside. Sunlight trickles through glass window panes into the house, where the occupants grow herbs for their spells and light candles by blowing on them. Those occupants are witches, of course. Two sisters named Sally, played by Sandra Bullock, and Jillian, played by Nicole Kidman, as well as their aunts, played by Stockard Channing and Diane Wiest. As a young girl, I watched these women through dreamy, wide eyes. They were strong, they were powerful, and they were playful. They ate chocolate cake for breakfast. They frolicked naked under the full moon. They blended up margaritas at midnight and danced around the kitchen in their pajamas. Midnight margaritas! I remember watching it with a friend one October during my sophomore year of high school. I'm pretty sure we were watching a VHS tape and the resolution was super grainy. And then the scene came on. After a buildup of significant sexual tension, two characters share a passionate kiss. Sitting on my friend's bedroom floor, I got butterflies in my stomach. I wanted to be kissed like that. But as a girl, Sally, Sandra Bullock's character, does not feel the same way. In fact, she's so determined to never fall in love that she casts a true love spell, except she conjures up an image of a man who doesn't exist. He can ride a pony backwards. He can flip pancakes in the air. He'll be marvelously kind. His favorite shape will be a star. And he'll have one green eye and one blue. Her logic is that if this man doesn't exist, she'll never fall in love. And she'll never have a broken heart. But when Sally gets older, the aunts secretly cast their own spell that allows her to find romance. That's how she meets the man who becomes her husband, Michael. She sends her sister this letter from the height of bliss. Dear Jillian, today is our third anniversary, and all I have to show for it are two beautiful little girls and a husband I just can't stop kissing. I don't even mind the beard. And then he dies, thanks to a freaking curse. And she's devastated. This movie introduced me to the idea that loving someone so much is risky. But that's not the only lesson I learned. There's an unbreakable bond between Sally and her sister Jillian. When Michael dies and Sally is deeply depressed and can't get out of bed, Jillian crawls under the covers with her, and they lay there together and talk for what seems like hours. Her presence allows Sally the space to open up. I was really, really happy. 
It can be heartbreaking to say out loud just how much a loss hurts, but it's one of the first steps in healing, and it often comes only after someone has done you the kindness of sitting with you in your grief. I rewatched Practical Magic the other day with one of my best friends. She came over, and we laid under a blanket on my couch with a candle lit. This friend is like a sister to me. She's been a steady presence in my life, in times of joy, and also in moments of grief, like when romantic love has fallen apart. If the witch has taught me anything, it's that life isn't so scary when you have the love of a sister. Also, to always throw spilt salt over your left shoulder and fall in love whenever you can. That was Marielle Segarra, host of NPR's Life Kit. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Orion Pictures presenting Till, based on the true story of Mamie Till Mobley's fight for justice for her son, Emmett Till, starring Danielle Deadweiler, now playing in select theaters everywhere October 28th. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Doubleday, publisher of The Boys from Biloxi by John Grisham, a new novel of fathers and sons, crime and punishment, loyalty and revenge. In stores now and available as an audiobook and ebook. This is WBUR. After a stellar October day, we should have a beautiful night tonight, but a cold one down around 40. Tomorrow's sun's back, rising to 53 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A rebound in the U.S. economy after months of negative growth, but high inflation and rising interest rates still pose a challenge. As long as the rates keep going up, we're going to find people slowing down. We dig into the country's economic outlook coming up. It's Thursday, October 27th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Haitians face humanitarian, security, and political crises, but many residents actively resist the idea of international investigations. The legacy, or the legacy that is, of so-called urban renewal in one city in the middle of the last century is poor health and medical debt in this century. Also, how the world got the giant hole in the ozone layer to shrink. And research by the Harvard Business School finds that people with a mix of weak and strong social ties report higher levels of happiness and well-being. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Russian-installed officials in Kherson have reportedly fled the city. 
NPR's Franco Ordonez reports on Ukrainian forces' latest moves to take back the critical city. The region's Kremlin-installed Governor Vladimir Saldo says more than 70,000 residents have been evacuated from the city. Monuments to Russian heroes were also moved. Russian forces captured the city during the first month of the war. It's a key part of Russia's planned offensive north and west, with plans to cut off Ukraine from the Dnipro River. Building on momentum following winds in the east and northeast, Ukrainian forces have continued their march along the Dnipro River, seeking to isolate Russian forces and cut them off from supplies. But Russia has also increased its military numbers around Kherson. Moscow-installed officials have also established territorial defense units. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Dnipro, Ukraine. A day ahead of the court-imposed deadline for Elon Musk to make good on his purchase of Twitter. The CEO of Tesla is trying to address advertisers' concerns about possible new policies. And bears will call Maria Dillon as more. If the $44 billion deal closes, Elon Musk will control a political asset, a mass communication platform, and a high-profile advertising business. But advertisers and users are nervous about what kind of policy changes he'll make there. Musk tweeted he's buying Twitter to help humanity and have a common digital town square. He wrote that the social media company must be warm and welcoming to all and a respected advertising platform. Previously, Musk said he would reinstate former President Donald Trump's account and loosen content moderation standards, as well as lay off a good portion of Twitter's staff. Raquel Maria Dillon, NPR News, San Francisco. Head of the midterm elections, one tactic appears to be seeking to sow doubt over the outcome. It's based on the more than 100 election lawsuits filed across the country, most by Republicans. The U.S. economy grew more than Wall Street expected in the third quarter, but as NPR's David Gurr reports, disappointing earnings from tech companies continue to drag down some sections of the market. Year over year, the U.S. economy grew by 2.6 percent in the third quarter. People kept spending, and the labor market remained strong. The latest companies to report earnings were Apple and Amazon. Apple's revenue was higher than Wall Street forecasted, but iPhone sales were slightly lower. Amazon did worse than forecasted, and it sounded a cautious note about the future. There is obviously a lot happening in the macroeconomic environment, is how CEO Andy Jassy put it, and he promised the company will become more streamlined. Meta, Facebook's parent company, was a huge weight on the Nasdaq for the day after its results showed a decline in ad sales. Meta closed down almost 25 percent. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Still, the Dow was up 194 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts economy has grown at a slower pace than the nation's as a whole for the third time in the last three quarters. Nationally, the economy grew at 2.6 percent annual rate from July through September. Massachusetts grew only six-tenths of a percent. Michael Goodman is a professor of public policy at UMass Dartmouth. He says Massachusetts is vulnerable to high interest rates because of its concentration of tech and life science companies. Those firms tend to rely on investment capital from private sources, uh, venture funds, et cetera. And in a rising interest rate environment, that's a more dicey proposition, especially in a slower uh, economy. 
Wage and salary growth in the state also lag behind the national rate. Investigators are looking into the cause of a crash this afternoon between a school bus and an SUV in Blackstone. The town's fire chief says three children aboard the bus went to the hospital with minor injuries. The driver of the SUV was also taken to the hospital, although that person's condition is not known. The MBTA says it needs to hire more than 750 new drivers if it wants to expand its bus service. The T wants to increase by 25 percent the frequency of bus trips in parts of the system, including Chelsea, Everett, Malden, Medford, Lynn, Roxbury, and Dorchester. The MBTA has a pilot program that trains new hires for commercial driver's permits. A former Northeastern University worker is now under federal indictment in connection with a bomb hoax. We learned today a federal grand jury indicted Jason Duhame of Texas. Prosecutors say in September, he staged a package explosion inside a university building and wrote fake a fake note to make it appear a terrorist was protesting against the use of virtual reality. The incident prompted a large police response and frightened the community. 61 degrees in the Boston area should drop all the way to 40 overnight tonight. Tomorrow, sunshine returns. Temperatures peaking at about 53 degrees. Saturday, bright and sunny around 60. Sunday, partly to mostly sunny, warming to about 63. It's 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ProQuest, whose website, Black Freedom Struggle in the U.S., curates 2,000 documents related to the fight for civil and human rights. Open to all at ProQuest.com slash go slash black freedom. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. We got some encouraging news about the U.S. economy today. Despite high inflation and rising interest rates, the economy grew at a pretty healthy clip in the late summer and early fall. That is a turnaround from the first half of the year when it appeared to be shrinking. The outlook, though, may not be as rosy as today's numbers suggest. And for more on that, we're joined by NPR's Scott Horsley. Hi, Scott. Hi, Juana. So, Scott, when you look at this report at first glance, it seems pretty positive. But tell us, how good is it? Maybe not quite as good as the headline number would suggest. Uh, We're talking about the Commerce Department's report on gross domestic product, which is the broadest measure of economic activity. And today's report shows the economy grew at an annual rate of 2.6% in July, August, and September after shrinking in the two previous quarters. But a lot of that turnaround came from a big swing in international trade. Exports were way up in the third quarter while imports were way down. And that's not likely to continue, especially when a strong dollar is making it more expensive for people in other countries to buy American products. If you focus on domestic demand, which is really the heart of GDP, what you see is an economy that is growing, but just barely. So, Scott, what is holding the economy back? Inflation is still high. Uh, That's cutting into people's purchasing power. And then the Federal Reserve is deliberately tapping the brakes in an effort to slow the economy and bring inflation under control. You know, the Fed has raised interest rates aggressively all through the summer and early fall, and you can really see the impact in the housing market. The housing component of GDP just plummeted in the last three months. Uh, I spoke with a Michigan home builder, Karen Schroeder, whose company Mayberry Homes is still working on the houses they started construction of uh, months ago. But she told me the phone's not ringing much, and the new sales that would ordinarily carry her into the new year have dropped off sharply in the last few months. As long as the rates keep going up, 
we're going to find people slowing down. It's slowing down our industry. It's slowing down our economy. And when housing slows down, everything does. It's true that when home sales drop off, so does demand for furniture and appliances and lots of other goods. And today's report does show a drop in spending on stuff in the last three months. Now, people are still spending money on services like travel and entertainment and health care. So even though prices are going up, people are still opening their wallets. And that's really important because consumer spending is still the biggest driver of the broader economy. And we've heard a lot of warnings about a possible recession being just around the corner. Scott, what does today's report tell us about that? We're not out of the woods. Uh, The core components of GDP show an economy that's moving just above stall speed, and it wouldn't take a lot to tip it into recession. Uh, The housing industry is probably there already. Freddie Mac said today that mortgage rates have topped 7% for the first time in two decades. That's more than double what a home loan cost last year. That's putting houses out of reach for a lot of people. Uh, Now, that said, Karen Schroeder told me she remembers selling houses when interest rates were 18%. So this is not her first taste of tough times. She had hoped she might ease into retirement without another uh, downturn in the housing market. But it looks like that's not in the cards. I've been in the industry since the 70s. And in 2008, I said that was the last recession I was going to do. And here I am. And I guess we're going to go through this one, too. Mark my words. You've got it on tape. This is my last one. Now, most forecasters say if there is a recession in the coming year, it should be much shorter and shallower than the 2008 downturn. You know, one source of strength is the job market, which is still really strong, and unemployment is still historically low. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you. You're welcome. The United Nations is weighing a motion to send an international force into Haiti. In the country, it's a topic of debate without any easy answers. NPR's Ader Peralta reports from Port-au-Prince. The protest starts just outside the French embassy in downtown Port-au-Prince. Down with the prime minister, they chant, down with the occupation. One of the protest organizers, Nicholson Pierre, says there is no life in Haiti at the moment. There's no electricity, no clean drinking water. So today the population is left on its own and the bandits are the law. Today the country is going to the slaughterhouse. The crowd behind him hoists a Chinese flag. Others carry Russian flags. When the UN was last here, he says, all they brought was kidnappings, rape, and cholera. If ever the United Nations will send foreign forces on this land, we're going to fight even more. Haiti has been spiraling for years now, but the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse last year precipitated an even deeper crisis. The country is now ruled by an acting prime minister, and nearly six weeks ago, a confederation of gangs blocked the country's main seaport and the massive fuel depots that keep Haiti going. The military and police, which are barely breathing, could do nothing but watch. Myself, I see this intervention as inevitable because you have gangs like in Somalia and you don't have the manpower, you don't have the guns to, to destroy this insurrection. That is historian Georges Michel. 
this is all painful, he says, because Haiti, the first black-led republic in modern history, cherishes its sovereignty. The other U.S. incursions in 1915 and 1994 and 2004 were seen as humiliating by Haitians. But at this point, he thinks, there might not be another choice. I would say something in French. Nous ne sommes plus à une humiliation près. At this point, he says, Haitians are not far from another humiliation. Jodian, nous n'avons mis un gang. Par contre, il se passe qu'autorier que gang n'a pas envahi. So now we are, uh, we have gangs everywhere. You can be là. Na mouri. Nous pas qu'à respirer. So they keep us right here. We're going to die. We cannot breathe. Pierre Esperance is one of the most prominent human rights advocates in Haiti. He says for years now, the government of Haiti has used gangs to squash dissent. The international community, especially the U.S., not only ignored the problem, he says, but they kept supporting the governments that were arming the gangs. The civil society, he says, offered them political solutions before Haiti descended into anarchy. You they don't want that. You have to decide. They want us to remain in that situation and they contribute also to that situation. Through our interview, Esperance offers plenty of reasons why an international intervention is a bad idea. It goes against the popular will. It is a military solution to a political problem. But when I ask him directly if he thinks an intervention is necessary, he demurs. Police Jean Guéla n'est pas capable résoudre problème. The current police force cannot solve the insecurity issue now. Police force need uh, a reinforcement. In the end, it's a choice between an intervention or the gangs. The protest works its way toward the UN offices, passing huge piles of trash that haven't been picked up in weeks. Out of frustration, demonstrators throw glass bottles to the streets. Junior Albert Augustin survived a kidnapping. He knows things are bad, but he doesn't want foreign troops here. Please let us live. That's all we ask for. We are human beings. We want to be respected, and we want to be able to decide by ourselves. Maybe, he says, they don't have a Haitian solution right now. But this country needs the space to try to find it. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Port-au-Prince. Elsa, I I have a question for you. Okay, yeah. How much time do you spend talking to strangers? Are you serious? In our job? Like every day. I don't think it's just the job for you. (laughs) That's true. I do go up to random people. I do. I feel like that's something that probably makes you happy. I think it honestly does. Interviewing people all day honestly makes me feel less lonely in life. I think my job makes me happier. Is that weird? I don't think that's weird. As somebody who's been doing this job last time, I think it makes me happier too. And I got to tell you, there's a new study that's out of the Harvard Business School, and it actually found that people are happier when they have more of something that's called relational diversity in their life. I will admit we made the term up (laughs) as we were writing the paper. It's a term that works, though. That is Hannah Collins. She authored the study, and she spoke to our colleague, Weekend Edition host Ayusha Roscoe about it. Relational diversity has two elements. So one is what we call richness. Richness measures how many different kinds of people you interact with day to day. So like your romantic partner versus your parent versus your neighbor versus strangers. 
And the second element is evenness, or how often you talk to each of them. So say on any given day, you mostly talk to your colleagues and you speak once with your mom. That's not very even. But if you, you know, have a few conversations with colleagues, a few with friends, a few with a romantic partner, a couple of chats with strangers, you know, that, that's going to be more even across these categories. And of course, we wanted to hear what everyday people thought about this. So we sent ATC producer Manuela Lopez Restrepo to Brooklyn's McCarran Park, well, to talk to some strangers. So I just wanted to know, do you talk to strangers a lot? Do you talk to people in your community, grocery store? Yeah, Yeah, exactly, like I'm doing. My editor is very sadistic in that way. But do you interact with strangers in your everyday life a lot? Yeah. One thing I love about our neighborhood living in is you can go to a grocery store and have a conversation with someone. I think especially after the few years that we've all been through, it's nice just to have interaction. So I would agree. I'll go to the corner store or whatever, and I talk to somebody and... We'll be talking about basketball, talking about bud, tequila, drinks. It don't even matter. We just spoke a conversation. You're like, all right, yo, I'm going to holler at you. I'm out. And then that next time I see him at the corner store, it just goes from point A to point B. And you just end up chilling or whatever, you know, just, just vibing. That was Mike Jones, Ashley Bice, and Eugene Granovsky. As for Hannah Collins, who conducted the research, she says it's changed how she lives her life. You know, I joined like an adult guitar class because I was like, I'll see people and I'll chat with them. The next time you're at the grocery store and you reach for the same apples as the person next to you, talk to them. I mean, I do, even if they don't want me to. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, refreshingly good news about one aspect of the environment. The gargantuan hole in the ozone layer is slowly shrinking. That story is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Inuendo with the Hunter Douglas Season of Style event featuring the PowerView Smart Motorization System. Hunter Douglas at Inuendo in Natick and Inuendo.com. Ups and downs on Wall Street today. The Dow was up six-tenths of a percent, 194 points, to close at 32,033. S&P was down the same amount, 0.61 percent, to finish the day at 38.07. And the Nasdaq lost the most ground, down 1.63 percent, to close at 10,793. Gasoline in Massachusetts is getting more expensive. Today's AAA Northeast survey shows the statewide average at $3.65 a gallon. That's a nickel higher than yesterday. The average price in Greater Boston is $3.76 a gallon. Dantucket has the highest price at $4.82 a gallon. Marketplace has details of all the business news of the day coming up in just about 10 minutes. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Book Festival, in person in Copley Square on October 29th. Celebrate the power of words. More at bostonbookfest.org. With so much at stake in this year's midterm elections, you don't want to fall behind. WBUR and NPR will keep you informed every step of the way. Keep listening here for midterm updates that you need here at 90.9 WBUR. Tonight, the Bruins will be skating at TD Garden Ice as they host the Detroit Red Wings. The Bees have got a three-game winning streak going. Game time is 7 o'clock. Forecast clear skies tonight. Temperatures right about 40. Then for tomorrow, sunshine once again. Highs about 53 degrees. It is 61 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include CIC Innovation Campus, 
committed to reimagining the office for the needs of today's workforce. Flexible office space tours available at cic.com slash enterprise. I'm Christopher Leiden. Next time on Open Source, the Ukraine debate we hadn't heard before. James Carroll, lifelong peacenik, says it's a just war to beat tyranny and worthy of U.S. support. Andrew Basevich, ex-Army officer out of West Point, says it's more military folly. Arguing war next on Open Source. Tonight at 9, Sunday at 2, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Knoxville, Tennessee, like many cities, was reshaped in the 1950s and 60s by so-called urban renewal. That took a toll on the city's black neighborhoods, and it also left a legacy of crushing medical debt. For our investigation into America's debt crisis with partner Kaiser Health News, Noam Levy went to Knoxville to explore that connection. I'm standing in what used to be the heart of black Knoxville. It's a bleak place now. There are acres of empty parking lots. Traffic rumbles by on a noisy freeway. Decades ago, though, there were medical offices here, grocers, funeral homes. The city's first black millionaire built a YMCA. The Gem Theater hosted performers like Billie Holiday. My guide is Gwen McKenzie. She's a city councilwoman who grew up nearby. We had doctors, we had lawyers, we had teachers. There were affluent black people who lived in this area. All this land that you see, that was basically devastated. Starting in the 1950s, Knoxville systematically bulldozed the area. They wanted to make way for the freeway and a new civic auditorium. Churches, black businesses, and hundreds of homes were leveled in the name of modernization. It changed the whole landscape. So you'll have generations that won't recover from that. That's Renee Kessler. She directs a nonprofit that preserves Knoxville's black history. It's called the Beck Cultural Exchange Center. What urban renewal left behind was a neighborhood that's now the poorest in Knoxville, and one with the city's largest share of black residents. A tiny fraction of people here are homeowners. Blocks are blighted by boarded-up buildings and overgrown lots. A Dollar General closed recently. It was one of the only stores in the area that sold groceries. Here's Councilwoman McKenzie again. What happened is that we concentrated black poverty, and from there it became generational. That's had a big impact on health. In East Knoxville, residents are sicker. There's more diabetes and other chronic illness. People here are less likely to have health insurance. They also have more medical debt. More than 30% of residents have a past due medical bill on their credit report. That's according to data from the Urban Institute. A few miles to the west, in Knoxville's overwhelmingly white suburbs, fewer than 10% are in debt for medical care. Ebony Winifred, a clinical psychologist, says what's behind that is a wealth gap. Black people are less likely to have generational wealth to pass on, which means we don't have pockets of money that we can just use if medical bills arise. Winifred works at Cherokee Health, a network of clinics that serve low-income patients around Knoxville. Nationally, the typical white family has about $184,000 in assets. This includes homes, savings, and retirement accounts. The assets of the typical black family, just $23,000. Lack of wealth feeds a vicious cycle. Black families without means are more hesitant to seek medical care. That means more illness. A trip to the hospital creates bigger bills. Many patients are forced into debt, making it even harder to build wealth. Back at Cherokee Health, Derek Folsom says something else is going on that discourages people from seeking care. Aggressive debt collection. 
Somebody knows somebody who's getting sued for medical bills, so they stay away from um, medical facilities. Folsom helps people enroll in health insurance. At the courthouse in Knoxville, debt cases brought by local hospitals fill the docket. National studies have shown that debt collectors target black people more aggressively than whites. Tabase Burns has seen the impact of all this medical debt and poor health too many times to count. She's a nurse in Knoxville. Burns told me about a good friend who'd come to see her recently with a medical concern. Burns was so worried, she felt almost angry. She lifted up her shirt, and it was evident that she had um, this chronic something going on in her breast. And after I told her, I ought to punch you in your face, that's the first thing I told her, because I'm like, how long have you seen this? And I know you knew you needed to take care of this. She didn't have any insurance, so she just thought it would get better. Turned out, the friend had cancer. Burns helped her find medical care, and the friend has since recovered. There was a cost to waiting so long, though. Because the cancer was so advanced, the woman had to get chemotherapy, and she had to have both breasts removed. It could have been worse. What if she didn't know me? What if she just continued to let her breasts leak? Burns says if her friend hadn't been so worried about medical debt, maybe she'd have gone to the doctor sooner. That was Noam Levy with our partner, Kaiser Health News. The ozone layer shields life on Earth from harmful radiation from space. Think of it as the Earth's sunscreen. But you may recall that back in the 1980s, we ripped a hole in that layer over the South Pole by using certain chemicals that destroyed ozone. Well, the world jumped into action and agreed in 1987 to the Montreal Protocol to phase out those chemicals. The hole peaked in size in 2006, and since then, it's been slowly shrinking, a trend that continued this year. Paul Newman is here to tell us more. He's chief scientist for Earth Sciences at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Paul, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I am well. Thanks for being here. Great. The ozone hole is shrinking in size, but still recovering pretty slowly. When do you expect this area of the ozone layer to fully recover? Well, the chlorofluorocarbons um, and halons that lead to ozone destruction are very long-lived chemicals. They increased in the atmosphere through the 70s and 80s, and they began to really decline in 1995. Now, we expect they'll decline at a rate where the ozone hole is back to a normal level in the 2060s to 2070s. The world agreed to phase out these ozone-depleting chemicals in the late 1980s, and it took decades to get to the moderate progress that we are seeing today. Is there a lesson here for acting on global climate change? I think there's a great lesson from the Montreal Protocol, and the lesson is that every nation on Earth has signed it. All nations agreed that protecting the Earth's ozone layer was an existential threat to life on the Earth's surface. I think as climate continues to change, nations are eventually are going to act to protect climate just as they've acted to protect the ozone layer. What do you think it is that's different about climate change that makes it harder for the world to come together and agree on steps to fight it? First of all, with climate, there are a lot more people using fossil fuels for various things than we're using chlorofluorocarbons back in, in the 1980s. And so it's a scale uh, problem. Everybody drives cars. Everybody has, you know, gas stoves and so forth. So it's a much, much bigger problem. Replacing air conditioners um, and refrigerators was a little easier back in the 1980s. 
at the time the protocol was signed, there were some technologies to replace uh, the chemicals that we use. I don't think people really know which chemicals have been replaced in their lives, but they've been replaced. We still have refrigerators, we still have air conditioners, we still have you know foam-blown insulation. All these technologies have now been replaced. And I think it's a real technological achievement um, that, that began to, uh, started at the time the Montreal Protocol was signed, but has evolved since then. Um, so all of these technologies are, are now replaced and, and they're ozone safe. Paul Newman is chief scientist for Earth Sciences at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Thank you for sharing a little bit of good news with us today. Uh, it's great to share that news, Juana. This is NPR News. This is WBUR, a starlit night tonight, but a cold one down around 40 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny again, rising to 53. Saturday, sunshine returns right about 60. Sunday, sunshine, maybe a few clouds, right about 63 degrees. 61 in Boston now at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson's On Beckett. Bill Irwin's Deeply Funny Show at the Paramount Theater, October 26th through 30th. Get tickets at artsemerson.org. I'm Deepa Fernandez. Twin sisters born in Vietnam and separated. One adopted and raised in the United States, the other growing up in a poor village. They reunited as teenagers. The process of reunion can be particularly painful and traumatic even, bringing in you know, constellations of family members from around the world. That's next time on Here and Now, tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.